Imagine you're an explorer trapped on a ship in the Arctic tundra with your crewmates. Some of them may not be entirely who they seem. How do you survive, find the traitors and win the game? This is the conundrum in the digital confectioner's published social deduction game Dread Hunger. It's one of the top titles on Steam right now thanks to its massive viral success in China. For our latest podcast, we had a chance to explore those wild viral discovery moments for the game with James Tan, one of the main creators of Dread Hunger. How did the team approach development? Why did the game take off shortly after its 1.0 launch? And what can we all learn from his success? I'm Simon Carlos, founder of Game Discover Co, and this is the Tales from Game Discovery Land podcast. Great, so here I am, and I'm here with James Tan. How's it going, James? Hey, Simon, it's going really well, thank you. Cool, yeah. I'm excited about this, because uh, you're one of my first guests on the podcast, and I get to talk to you about Dread Hunger, and Dread Hunger's a game that's doing pretty well recently. So firstly, congratulations on that. Are you happy with how it's being received right now? Thank you, yeah. No, likewise. Um, this is my first podcast, so I'm very excited to do this as well. Uh, yes, no, I would say we're, we're extremely happy with the results, and extremely happy about the success of the game. Yeah, and, and what I wanted to start with, actually, was sort of talking about the background of the creation of the game, because I know that social deduction games Games have been around for a while and there's even been even before Among Us and Among Us is obviously a well-known one but there's also games in VR like Ubisoft had Werewolves Within that I think was social deduction as well so I wanted to ask you know what made your team want to make a game like this what's the genesis of the project mm. so this project sort of started around late 2019 and I sort of got we got together with a good friend of ours Alex Quick which we had made games together in the past uh, we made depth together way back in 2012 was when we started that project together with him and essentially i gave uh, alex and my uh, lead product designer neil uh sort of free reign to kind of just choose and do whatever they felt like doing and given that depth was a sort of very sort of almost hardcore pvp asymmetric style shooter um, they wanted to do something a little different and they sort of explored around all these different genres and all these different themes, and they sort of settled upon, you know, social deduction wasn't very popular right at that moment right then. And they've been playing some really popular board games surrounding social deduction. Um, and uh, and so based on sort of, sort of the board games that they've been playing, uh, you know, things like The Resistance, uh, card games like that, I, I think that sort of sparked this initial idea of, oh, what, what happens if we, you know, try asymmetric from a different angle of hidden information rather than you know one side is sharks and one side is divers. they're obviously very different um, but in this case it was more about well what if the asymmetry was about information and how asymmetrical that can be uh, and that sort of evolved from that there rather than sort of looking at well you know is a social deduction a really popular genre within sort of gaming space at, at that time um, and and i would say just just sort of from that free reign and and sort of experiments from there that's sort of how they sort of came up with this idea. In terms of the theming, a lot of it was very much based on on the film series The Terror. Uh, so you know, a lot, a lot of sort of um, inspiration came from that um, sort of film series, which was which was also a really cool theme to explore. Uh, at the time, we didn't think many people were sort of looking uh, at that, and so 
uh, that's sort of why we decided to go with that thing. And that's pretty interesting from a discovery point of view, because, yeah, you were sort of accidentally early to a genre that, at least from Among Us's perspective, suddenly became quite popular. So, you know, you already had a head start on that and you felt like it was underdeveloped at that time. But probably from a discovery point of view, it's better to go into a genre that has some people familiar with it than one where you have to sort of blaze your own trail, right? So when we first started looking at sort of these things, these genres, social deduction and survival, we actually started out by picking out the stronger genre, which was actually survival at the time. And we wanted to have that asymmetrical gameplay using sort of the, the misinformation and, and things like that. Uh, but the game initially was more focused on the survival elements and sort of sprinkles of you know misinformation where one player would say oh you know I, I just went and did this when they actually didn't do that or i just saw somebody do this when that actually didn't really quite happen um, and we sort of really liked those kinds of uh, betrayal moments because they sort of highlighted more sort of it sort of gave use players more room for sort of player generated stories about funny things that would happen and i think you, it's fair to say that when Among Us really, you know, started gaining a lot of attraction, uh, a lot of sort of, um, it, it became more popular really quickly. We, we sort of slightly pivoted a little bit in the marketing message and, and sort of start focusing a little bit more on the, you know, oh, you're all trying to survive in the cold, and so it's you know, you, you don't know what is in the world in the, in the wilderness out there, and there's these, uh, you know, animals all trying to hunt you down and, and stuff like that. And on top of that, you know, but the worst enemy is. You know, potentially your crewmate um, and I think that made for a really compelling theme yeah and it is important to know uh, you know when I was talking to you ahead of this podcast you know you wanted to make sure that I think you'd answer people who would say isn't it just among us in 3D and to your point there I think the point is there's quite a lot more gameplay in it right there's a lot of survival elements there's kind of action so you know you would describe it much more as a hybrid genre wise than simply a, a pure social deduction game right yeah yeah I think I think um the best way of putting it is really that Among Us really focuses just purely on the social deductions. That really the pure focus, um, and because we throw in more survival elements, get to those points of like almost those feelings of desperation of how do I survive? And maybe in order to survive, there are things that I'm going to need to do that I otherwise normally wouldn't, uh, and and sort of trying to put players in that kind of situation. And I think it's very similar to to maybe how. Um, how you would normally, how you would actually feel if you were stuck in the Arctic and you had a, a very small crewmate um, size, and, and you ba you're all trying to go out and, and look for resources and food and things like that. And, and there probably are things you're going to have to do in that situation. Uh, I think the strongest element really is in Among Us when you are the imposter. It, it's very clear that you know of what you're supposed to do, and that is just you're just supposed to eliminate everybody else in the most stealthy way as you possibly can. And uh, when somebody you know, gets eliminated, they then go into that discussion room to figure out who is or who isn't the imposter, and then you know, they throw whoever it is into the space that they think it is. Whereas with Dread Hunger, it's a lot more about subtlety. There's, there's a lot more arguing in terms of, yeah, but he did this, oh, but he also did this, or she did this, and she, but she also did that. You know, why would, a, why would, in our case, imposters being thralls, why would a thrall go and get all this coal for us that we actually need? Like, why would they do that? And possibly the thrall is playing a long game, so he tricks them or tries to gain their trust. There's a lot more of those elements coming in where you, you can do actions where you're trying to gain somebody's trust. Uh, so during playtests is a really good example uh, where when we're playing, um, often we would play the long game where we would gain everybody's trust and 
you know, just constantly say things like, if I was a thrall, you know, I wouldn't be bringing back all this wood, or I wouldn't be bringing back all this coal. Uh, only for, you know, halfway through the game or near the, nearer towards the end of the game where we suddenly go, haha, you know, actually I was the thrower and I've just stolen all your food or I've just poisoned all your food and, and go from... So there's a lot more sort of those kind of subtle elements which feed into the social deduction we, we feel. So rather than just sort of accusing somebody just outright, oh, you're the imposter. And there's really not a lot you can do about that situation. Was once the group has decided that you, you know, for some reason you're the imposter, there's kind of very little you can do. And even if you're, even if somebody identifies you as a throw and said, like, I actually saw this player do this thing, which, uh, you know, sort of positively identifies them as a throw, because it's still a survival game, throws can still fight back. So, yes, they might be discovered, but it's not the end of the world for them as such. So, they can still uh, gather resources to to craft weapons and things like that and just go on the offensive. That's pretty cool, yeah. So it's pretty complex, really. And so, I mean, it's interesting to me in terms of how you develop this. You know, there's obviously quite a lot of complexity of tactics. And so maybe you can talk about, you know, how did you work with earlier development? Did you announce the game early? Did you have a lot of private alphas and betas to kind of get people interested and then kind of tune the gameplay? Or were you a bit more private early on? Uh, we were definitely a lot more private early on, I would say. Uh, I think there was just a lot more experimentation, and I think I, I think it's fair to say that this is sort of where a lot of the experience comes in. Uh, with Alex and Neil having sort of played a lot of these social deduction board games, it's sort of what are the kinds of sort of emotions or feelings or or or, or kind of situations do we want to recreate within this game? Um, and, and thinking more about the game design from a point of view of rather than just straight mechanics of, okay, so if we add this weapon, it'll, it'll allow players to do X or Y or Z. It's more thinking, well, what are tools that we can add to the player's arsenal that could create these situations for us? So, I mean, in terms of the design, it seems like you get it pretty close to the chest. And even in terms of announcing the game, how long before early access release did you end up announcing? And how did you go about kind of building up a bit of a head of steam for the early access announcement? Yeah, so the general strategy that we tried to employ there was uh, to use Steam's playtest functionality. And uh, and, and we already had a, a sort of a, a very dedicated sort of community following from depth. Uh, and so some of the, um, some of our community from death followed us through to Dread Hunger, which was awesome, which was fantastic. And so we sort of started with this very small contingent of players um, where we were playing the game and we were exploring different concepts and different ideas. Um, but even then, that period of time only lasted, uh, I think from memory, it's only like uh, several weeks or so. Um, and then we went from playtest into early access. But I think by that stage, we had a reasonable sized team working on the game. Um, I think it's sort of around about 20, 30 people uh, working on the game at that point in time. And so within internal playtests, we were already starting to see a lot of the situations that we wanted to create within the game already happening sort of naturally. Yeah, and it seems that after you went into early access and even up to date, you've done a pretty good job of, you know, the games as a service approach. You've been quite aggressive with doing regular updates. So I wanted to ask about that a little bit. You know, how do you, was your team already used to this like very incremental games as a service approach from the other titles you'd worked on? It seems like you were quite efficient at it. Yeah, so for early access, we knew it was important to have really regular updates. Uh, I, I think it's sort of become part of early access now in, in that you can't do early access now where you just sort of go like, okay, the game is there and you know, we'll, we'll, you'll hear back from us in, in three to four months time with an update. Um, you sort of need that regular roadmap content sort of drops. Um, and we'd been doing that for Depth for a really long time. Um, so Depth launched in 2014 and we only recently sunsetted that game um, in 2022. 
Uh, so it's been a really long time. Um, and so we're very much used to, to sort of creating sort of the games as service. But I do want to sort of say that uh, so Dread Hunger is not really designed to be games as service. It's not really designed to um, to be something like that in, in the sense that, you know, we're not going to do regular um, DLC or regular monetization methods that you would normally see in, in games as service. Yeah, so it's um, it's games as a service in the sense that it's regularly updated, but it's not games as a service in the sense of any of the IAP or DLC, perhaps, that is done in other ones. Um, yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about the kind of success of the game, because I remember seeing the game once or twice when I, you know, through early access, and it was an interesting one, because for me, it had definitely not, like, failed. It wasn't like it was had a dead community, but it seemed to be bubbling along all the time at kind of like a mid-level in the kind of, I'd say, you know, low thousands of CCU. So how did you folks see that? Like, what were you doing during Little Access to try and juice it? And do you feel like you had some success? Or do you think it's just the fact that it wasn't 1.0 yet was making some people hold back on it? Uh, so I think there's a lot of speculation as to sort of what happened during Early Access. We don't have a ton of proof as to what our speculation is. Uh, but I'll say it here. Um, we kind of wonder if... So we generally divide it into two, you know, two parts of the world. We've got the West and the, and the East in this particular part, with the East being China. Um, and we think what happened in the West is that there was, there were definitely was sort of some level of burnout we feel from in, in the social deception category of games, you know, in the sense that everybody had played Among Us and everybody had played um, sort of that to, you know, and, and and sort of almost became burnt out in that genre where they just sort of said, oh, it's another social deception game i've already played that i'm done with that i'm, I'm you know i want to look for something else um and i wonder if that's definitely true uh with you know so sort of that in, the, in this very similar space with battle royales in the sense that people have played uh one of their favorite battle royales and they basically say i don't want to play a different one because you know i've already experienced what that whole genre has to offer um and so we sort of wondered if, if that was certainly the case uh with what sort of how it sort of happened in the West where there was some interest in it, but it wasn't like, you know, what we are seeing today. Uh, whereas I think sort of where it happened with China, it was sort of, um, as far as we've been looking, you know, Among Us wasn't a massive sort of phenomenon within China itself. And and I'm curious, and this is pure speculation, whether it's just a situation where it takes time for these kind of genres to, to go from one region of the world and then they jump to a different region of the world and then maybe they come back into into previous regions when you sort of got a new sort of a new generation of players who haven't played those types of genres before and they sort of come back into it really strongly. It's sort of almost like these genres coming and going in waves kind of thing. Like for a longest time I thought that first person people PvP arena style shooters were, were basically done. You know, uh, we, we'd seen Quake 3, we'd seen Unreal Tournament, they'd come and go, and trying to make one maybe five years ago was basically like a no no. Like, you, you wouldn't succeed if you did that. But, but I think certain games like Halo Infinite have some, sort of come back and shown no, it is actually possible again to do those sorts of things. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And it does seem like, it, you know, let's talk about the transition. You know, I think you had good success through early access, but it was kind of bubbling along. And it seems like somewhat just after full release, uh, China especially started to notice it, and then also the West did. So can you talk about the time around full launch and how it went and sort of what were the first signs that you felt like you were starting to do better? Did you have local partners to help with that, for example? So Dreadhunger is, is an interesting game because we self-published that. Uh, we didn't have any sort of external publishing help with that at all and more interestingly was that we did not actually have any partners in china to help us with that at all we focused all of our pr and marketing efforts uh, purely in the west uh, and so 
seeing the sudden rise in China was a complete surprise to us. Um, something that we hadn't anticipated at all and not something that we even tried to, to really do as such. Um, and we learned from depth that localization is really important. And I think a lot of game developers uh, will, will say that, you know, you should localize your game in pretty much all the languages that you think is going to be really important to your game. So eFigs is, is, is the good example there. And from our experience, we knew that we, we also look at it from a point of view of, okay, if we're going to localize, you know, does that country, uh, are they, uh, you know, do they speak English? Um, or are they more comfortable? Well, I really shouldn't say that. I should, should more say, are they more comfortable with their own native language versus just English or versus some other, you know, other other language? Um, and we definitely feel that within the certain, certain countries, they very much prefer um, their native language, which is, yeah. So localization was really the main thing that we did to ensure that players in those regions could play the game very comfortably. Uh, and then... So I think I think there's a lot of history with social deduction that it was very sort of I, I had no idea, uh, and, and so in China, um, quite a number of years ago, uh, they used to play a game just called Werewolf, and this was the uh, you know uh, real life kind of version of the social deduction, very similar to Mafia, right? And what happened all those years ago was they had some very popular streamers you just play this game in real life and it became pretty popular but that popularity transitioned into a tv show so they had celebrities playing this game as a tv show and that also gained a ton of popularity as well uh, and eventually that that kind of transitioned into um, generally the the general population under 30s had all played this type of game before it became popular enough that people were actually setting up sort of cafes very similar to like karaoke bars but cafes where you could go to and play this game with just random people that you know in real life this was all unknown to us we, we did not know this uh, but when we found out we sort of was like oh okay that makes sense because you know when you've got sort of people under 30 80 percent of them had played this type of game before they could see the connection between what they were doing then to, to what this game is is also trying to achieve at the same time and so very much luck uh, of what happened here i think we did not know this history. We did not know this happened. And it was only really sort of fairly recently when we found out that this is what happened in the past, where we suddenly made the connection. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And I'm sure uh, some of us might be thinking, well, you know, if it was that popular, certainly there would have been games made like this, right? Um, and truth was, there were games that were made uh, like this in China as well. The problem was, was that they tried to take the real life werewolf game and just transition that into a mobile game so it became more like just um kind of just like a, a bit like zoom meetings you know the, the way they do that you know where they basically have people just on a webcam and they just put eight webcams up in a, in a row and you basically you're chatting um but it didn't have the same vibe as the the real life thing because people would often afk people would often do this and do that and and then people were just using that game as as other means of doing other things Whereas our, whereas with a with a video game, it's it's a lot more sort of a, a bit more of a directed experience where you've actually got tools that you can do and tools that you can use and so forth. Yeah, and obviously Dread Hunger is a very nice looking game, if I do say so. You know, it's sort of like a AAA adjacent looking game, so it's obviously really going to help because there's plenty of players on Steam who want to play good looking games that aren't like cartoony and or Among Us like. And but you know, clearly if it's got that really nice vibe and a bit of survival, but it has a lot of social deduction, that's obviously the thing that made it made it do so well. I mean, obviously that has led to problems for you as well because obviously your game is lobby based. So uh, can you talk a little bit about obviously you know some of the West has been complaining that it's 
you know, there's a lot of foreign language speakers in lobbies and stuff like that. I mean, do you think that's a little bit overblown or have you tried to do anything to help with that? Uh, you know, I see that as a similar problem to essentially what PUBG had uh, a bit in the past where you've got the sudden influx of players um, who all speak a basically a different language and it's essentially impossible to, to communicate with, with each other because you know, everyone's speaking different languages. In the sense of what are we doing about this, um, so we've added language filters so that you can start filtering by languages. Um, we've added regions so that you can say, okay, I, I really only want to look for games within my region, so North America, East as an example. So, so those are some of the things we're doing. We're, we're doing more things to help um, sort of facilitate you know, easier ways of finding matches within a certain set of parameters that is more preferable. So whether that's, you know, I only really speak English or Chinese, um, and so you can start filtering for those. Um, but there are some things that we're still cooking up, but it is, it is a very sort of complex problem to solve. We've even sort of had the wild idea of, I wonder if we could, you know, use like a, a speech recognition or, or something to, you know, take in what they're saying through the microphone, translate that, and then convert it to English on the other side, you know, as, as a thing. But uh, we, as we've found out, that's a very difficult problem to actually solve. Yeah, I think Microsoft has tried to do that in real time and it's taken them like massive computing power. Yes. <laughs> it's not even that great yet. So, yes. so yeah, I'd agree with you. I think that's complex. But yeah, I think if you can just sort by, absolutely, if you can just sort by, um, yeah, like, like service to play on and stuff like that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, related to that, obviously role play is a big part of this game. And I did, did want to ask about community management or player management because I saw that you had a code of conduct, which was I thought was kind of cool. So could you talk a little bit about kind of how you decided to set up the code of conduct and whether you feel like, players do pay attention to it yeah yeah um i i think early on when when we sort of in the early access phase um yeah we had romy and she's been doing a fantastic job with community management along with the community management team um we actually had a very you know, pretty serious trolling problem right at the beginning i think that taught us a lot of lessons as in social deduction or social deception as a genre is very interesting because when people are playing it right uh you get you, you not only do you get the real sense of betrayal but you sort of go like oh i should have seen that coming you know you know that's that's totally obvious but i think there's a very gray line there's a very gray sort of fuzzy area where you could be trolling and you could be just saying actually i'm the thrall so you know i'm supposed to do this sort of thing right so Romy's um, been doing a fantastic job with community management there, along with the community management team. would say that for social deception games, um, you, you sort of have this very fuzzy gray area where trolling and griefing is not really... It's not fun to be griefed and trolled. It's, it's okay if somebody is a thrall and they're doing things that basically move their advantage. And, and I think when the game is played right in this sense... Uh, you sort of get that feeling of like, oh, you know, I've just been betrayed and oh, I should have seen that coming. You know, I, there were all the signs were there and I just didn't quite pick up on it. And yeah, next time, if I see somebody doing these things, I'll, I'll know better for sure. Uh, but I think the problem that we had with really early on is that we just had a lot of trolling, a lot of griefing. And, you know, when you have games with VoIP and you have games with, uh, you know, where you can do things that negatively affect other people, I, I think that's sort of when we decided, okay, we really need to start encouraging people to to play in the in, in sort of in a way that's enjoyable and fun for others and not just sort of constantly trolling and constantly griefing at everybody else. And I would say that our community is fantastic because they know they they sort of know, you know, where to where to go 
within that sort of very grey, fuzzy kind of area. Um, and I'd say that's something that we're really sort of happy about, really proud of, is that um, our community is doing a really, really great job there and actually just making it fun for everybody. Yeah, no, that's really good. And ultimately, you're right. This only works if everyone on the uh, team of players is playing within the same boundaries. And I do think it's great that you've had a really clear code of conduct about what you expect acceptable behaviour and unacceptable behaviour to be. And I think that makes it very, very clear for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's difficult, right? Like, it's, it's always tricky because... So there was, a, there was a part in the game where we had made the game very sort of... A lot more fuzzier than what it is today. So, for example, as a, as a crewmate, you used to be able to sort of build these sort of explosive um, powder kegs. And you had legitimate uses for them because they were quite lethal. Um, and so if you if you saw thralls and you wanted to defend an area, you could start throwing down powder kegs and things like that. Um, you could use powder kegs to also you know sort of detonate and explode icebergs that were sort of in the way and, and just things like that. So there were legitimate uses for those. Um, but most of the time, unfortunately, you know, as we sort of grew the community much larger, it just sort of became a tool for just griefers to, to use constantly. Um, and so we had to change the gameplay a little bit where we said, okay, well, if you're a crewmate, there are just some things that you just can't craft and that you can't do. Because um, often we got the the, the very uh, blunt response of, well, if you let me do it, I'm going to do it kind of response. <laughs> yeah, and, that's, and obviously with games where there's user creativity, people will find uh, creative things to do. So yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> that's, absolutely. That's definitely an issue. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I also wanted to ask uh, about kind of, you know, your monetization methods for the game, because obviously the main way you buy the game is as standalone. But I did also notice you have a few cosmetics that are viable. And, I, you know, my impression is that's not a, a massive part of the game's future because it's a fairly period game. So you're not going to be doing like space helmets. But I thought it was cute you could buy like glasses and i think maybe hats and stuff so can you talk about you know what how much of a focus you put on that like what's available and is that something that you'll be doing more of yeah i would say that we sort of wanted to get away from you know trying to transition this into a live service or to make it into a gas as such um we think that business model can work really well absolutely for sure uh, but we don't feel it's just sort of what we wanted to do with this um, and so in terms of adding more sort of in-app purchases and, and things like that, um, that's certainly something we'll be doing just because we've got sort of ongoing costs um, to cover and, and things like that. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think one thing that's completely surprised us was just sort of the uh, average and medium playtimes for the game. Um, we didn't anticipate it being so long. So for depth, we have sort of an average playtime of sort of about, uh, I think it's sort of about sort of four or five hours. And then for uh, the median for depth was sort of one and a half hours. That was sort of the, those are the numbers that we're kind of used to, right? Like we're like, okay, that's cool. Um, but for Dread Hunger, we're seeing average playtimes of like 30 hours. And we're seeing medium playtimes of like seven, eight hours, which is, in, in our opinion, really, really long. Um, and so we didn't anticipate people would be sort of maining the game as such. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think our current strategy now is really just to focus on original sales, you know, in terms of purchases there and, and to make the pricing right on those um, and then go for like in-app purchases in the long run. Yeah, and there were plenty of games which, you know, I used gas earlier in this, you know, for games as a service. And I think, yeah, you're right. Some people associate that with 
with much more IAP-led economies, but also there are games like like Astroneer and No Man's Sky that just could keep updating, but they don't have a great deal of in-app purchases as it, and they just rely on people buying new copies of the game. So it sounds like that's really what you're going for, mainly in the, in the medium term. Yeah, yeah. We I think we just see it as a, as a much more straightforward economy for people to get into. You know, they buy the game once, and, and, and away they go, and they can play basically forever. And if they um, want to continue supporting us, that's fantastic, and they can do that. Um, rather than sort of being sort of led into an economy where it's like, okay, um, the game might be free or the game might be extremely cheap. Um, and then the only way to, to sort of keep going is to then start doing... Because uh, one of the things with Dread Hunger that we don't do, for example, is we don't do daily drops. We don't do per round drops. We, we don't do those kinds of things. And so I think, I think it, it sort of was an experiment of ours to say like, well, can we get a lot of intrinsic sort of reasons for people to keep playing? rather than a lot of ex- extrinsic reasons. Um, and I think this goes into the psychology aspects of game design a little bit. Because um, what we know is for depth, you know, where we do do all those things, where we have constant drops that you know, occur at the end of every game and things like that, was that you know, people's focus would shift away from, I want to play the game, to I'm only playing the game to get the drop. And that was it. Yeah, you're right. And it is. Uh, I've actually noticed that because I was playing some Apple Arcade games that used to be free to play. And um, someone did an interesting editorial about this where they were saying it's really weird when there's a game that has like drops and kind of vir- multiple virtual currencies that are themed around the fact it's free to play. But actually now you, you can just play it with it, you know, for free because, yeah, a lot of the motivations change. So I, I see what you mean. So, so you're definitely keen, at least uh, at this point in the game's history, to keep people's motivations much more pure and around uh, actually playing the game rather than worrying about yeah auxiliary stuff related to it right yeah absolutely because um some, some of the behaviors that we saw in depth were really kind of interesting to us in, in the sense that people would play games but they wouldn't really actively participate in them or they would do things that would only increase the score so that they would get more drops and and those certain things and i think we just didn't want to see that happening a- again where you've just got a population all they with the majority focused on I just want drops and that's it um, and, and so they'll just do things so they'll join a game and they'll just AFK the whole thing and so we add an AFK protection and then they you know they find a little hacky program that'll like move them every now and then you know, you know just those kinds of things and then it sort of becomes more us spending way more time stopping people from abusing those systems rather than focusing on making the game better for people yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's going to focus more on, on the pure gameplay, basically. Yeah. So yeah, I also wanted to ask, you know, about the kind of virality when you've seen the game go a little bit viral, especially in China. I know you can't really monitor this, but did you get a sense that it is streamers kind of playing in groups that was a reason why it got bigger? Do you have any sense about, uh, you know, how it ended up blowing up? Yeah, so um, so so learning about the history of what happened with sort of social deduction, and and the werewolf game and, and so forth, um, that was that was a revealing point to us. But we didn't learn about this until much later, when when somebody kind of told us this whole thing, where they were like, "Oh, actually, werewolf is like a big, or was a big deal, maybe sort of six seven years ago." Uh, I think for us, the way we sort of determined what was happening was was likely to be, you know, was because I guess that's the fear that all of us game developers have when we see a sudden upspike and whether it's CCUs or whether it's sales or whatever it is you just sort of go like is this a one-off like is this going to last a day or two days or three days or sort of thing or is this going to be more of an ongoing thing uh, and, and I think the way we figured this out and we tracked it was one we were seeing basically constant growth every day um, and we saw it for longer than a week and so for the first time that we started seeing these spikes, it was around about the middle of January, about a week before our launch. 
So we started seeing, oh, there's a there's a new region playing this game. And then we thought, oh, that's interesting. And as that sort of continued to grow through the week, we were wondering, you know, is this going to last or is this not going to, is this going to disappear? And so we started tracking our retention numbers, our D1s to D30s, or we didn't have D30s at the time, but D1s to D7s. And we saw that they were sort of above what we would, the industry good. So the industry good, I can't remember the exact numbers, but these were numbers published by Supercell. I think essentially in their research, they sort of indicated if you have good D1s of people returning to the game after day one and people return to the game after day three and day seven, if you have these sort of percentage numbers, you've got a sticky game. And if you've got a sticky game, you're likely to continue to grow and and so forth. So this was, we we, we really learned about this in depth. So depth has a very low uh, retention. You know, I think its retention is really sort of people might play it for a couple of days and they're done with it forever. They've seen it, they're done with it. And and the extrinsic benefits like the drops and so forth help a little bit, but they're not strong enough to constantly keep people coming back. But what we saw in Dreadhunger was totally different. People were constantly returning to the game, um, which was fantastic. Uh, and, and we think it's that combination of, of two things where you've got streamers playing the game, good retention. And so when people do go and then buy it um, and, they're, and they're really enjoying themselves, you're sort of going to get this constant growth pattern basically just going up and up and up and up. But it's interesting you mentioned depth, because obviously depth may have relatively poor retention in your view, but also it's sold a lot of copies. So is that because it has a really good upfront hook? Is that the reason it does well, you think? So so this was a really good advice from somebody's uh, opinion that I really value, which is uh, Jamie from Clay. He, he gave me a ton of mm-hmm. advice about, about a lot of different things. And this was one of the most important pieces of advice that he gave me. He said uh, to me, uh, and I want to apologize to Jamie if I've butchered this, I do apologize. Um, is that he kind of sort of revealed to me that you really want your game to do well when it's not on sale. If it only does well on sales, you've kind of got a problem because you're constantly having to do sales to keep chasing that. So with depth, really, I think uh, the reason why it probably sold a lot of copies is because, I mean, I dare to say it's it's probably because it is a good game, but it was also $5. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you get to this point where you sell the majority of your copies through, you know, sort of really cheap sales, um, sort of in that, yeah, sort of 4 to $5 range. And then if you get to different currencies, you get to even cheaper ranges, right? And and once you once the bulk of your sales come from that region, it's sort of almost like a you get this uh, feedback loop where people are saying it's a good game, but it's only worth five dollars. So only pick it up when it's five dollars. And so I think with depth, the main driver was just the fact that it was cheap, but it was good for it, it was a good price and it was good for it being that cheap. But we had anchored ourselves incorrectly. Um, whereas with Dread Hunger, it's it's very different numbers where people are, are buying it without a discount. Like um, during the Lunar New Year sale, that was really interesting as well because even though we weren't on discount and we had just sort of recently launched at that time period, um, we were still sort of hitting in the top 20s on the global top sellers. And so we were looking at that and we were thinking, well, if we can still hit the global top 20s and not being on discount and not being sort of, uh, you know, because Steam had the takeover at that point in time, right? Um, and not being really present on that storefront uh, immediately, we were like, well, this is doing really well. Whereas most of the time, if you're not on discount during a, a Steam sale like that, you're probably just going to disappear and never be seen again. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's a real good sign. And I would like to, I know you made depth, but I would like to defend. I do think it has a good hook. And I think it has a good hook because it's a good looking game where, you know, you're playing as a shark or a diver, right? And so I think people are excited about like sharks and attacking divers. So I think that's just a really good kind of uh, entry point, personally. So I, I do think depth has a, has a bit of hook, actually. So I wouldn't underestimate the basic hook of depth, having you know, the shark and the diver. That's kind of exciting, I think. No, thank you. Thank you. We, um, I mean, I really appreciate those comments. Um, I mean, we do like depth a lot ourselves and I think there's just a lot to learn uh, from how we made that game game design and, and all those different aspects of it um, and how we did things over the years um, I think that's that in itself has really fed back into how we designed depth and how uh, sorry dread hunger and how we changed our design philosophies um, surrounding sort of dread hunger and I think at the time we were for depth specifically we were looking more at like Counter-Strike and, and what they were doing and things like that and then sort of going and this is how we got to the whole oh let's let's think about you know drops and let's think about retention and those styles and those uh, those methods um, and after going through all of that we sort of decided okay maybe we don't want to try that again for whatever's next and in this case it was dread hunger and then I did want to ask, um, you know, there, there is another, if I go to your Steam page, there is another title you're listed as publisher on, which is called Last Tide, mm -hmm. and it's kind of some kind of aquatic battle royale. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested, was that something that was kind of your core game for a while and sort of who worked on that? And it, it seems like it was pretty cool, but it didn't end up achieving escape velocity. So uh, do you have any views on what happened there? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So this was, so the, uh, very much the same team worked on this game as we did with Dread Hunger. And so, uh, you know, from a studio, makeup we're very strong in engineering really strong in engineering so myself and my co-founder sam we're both engineers um, him being more on the infrastructure side of things and me being more on the unreal engine side of things and and at the time when sort of battle royales were coming out we were sort of looking at them and we we're like you know from a technical perspective we think we could do a better job in terms of you know smoothness in terms of frame rate in terms of network playability and all these different things we we, we felt we could do a better job and and this was during sort of the those mini peaks that we saw in battle royales of um when it was just a mod and that's sort of where we got that main driver to do it right it was it wasn't really like oh PUBG landed and became a massive success so now we're going to start doing that because the way we see things is that if we try to chase massive successes like that you, you're going to fall because it's unless you've got really deep pockets it's really hard to chase you know a massive success and so timeline wise we, we sort of started working on that really early on and and we didn't really shift focus to purely working on that game until sort of later in 2017 2018 you know, I, I would say by that point we, I think the short story is, is that we launched it and by that point there were so many battle royales available where it got to a point I think around our launch everybody was announcing their battle royales. You know, there was too much supply and not enough people basically and, and, and one of the things as we learned is that when, when PUBG has the retention and has the playtime, like PUBG in a sense has those kind of same retention uh, and, and those hours put in, right? Like people are playing it for like a median time, probably of like 15, 16 hours. And the average play times must be, you know, just bonkers, must be like 100 hours or something like that. And trying to pull people away from their main, which in this case might be PUBG, might be Fortnite, might be other games or uh, other battle royales is, is a really difficult thing to do. 
Yeah, that's something I've noticed, actually. There are some genres, you know, in my work with Game Discover Co., I look at this a little bit, and there's some genres where you're right. I call them sort of displacement genres. You have to displace uh, the, the game that's already incredibly popular. And this has been a problem all the way back to World of Warcraft. Everyone was like, wow, World of Warcraft's doing so well. We'll just make lots more World of Warcraft. And the answer is you have to get someone to stop playing World of Warcraft to start playing your game. Exactly. So I, I agree with you. I think that's that's ultimately the issue with Battle Royales. And obviously, good news with social deduction games. Games, I think is there's you know there's really less games in that space right now. Obviously, you found especially in China, but even on Steam, I think you know there's other ones like First First Class Trouble. I think is is, is one that's social deductiony. So so there's a few games like that, but you know they're more sophisticated and I think a bit more complex to make. Honestly, so that's probably another reason that you've managed to distinguish yourselves. I think you can't like ham-handedly slather on gameplay mechanics and social deduction. That they're, they're pretty subtle. I think from a gameplay point. Of yeah. Point. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and plus I think making multiplayer games um, brings its own level of complexities and difficulties where you just have to deal with a different set of problems compared to, to single-player games. So I think, you know, we're, we're approaching the end of the chat now. I do want to ask about, like, where you see yourself going in the future with the game, you know, for the next few months. Like, are the, you know, now you've picked up this head of Steam, and I think you have, you know, somewhat more Western players and a great deal more Chinese players. Like, what's your, what's your plans for the future? Are you going to be, you know, updating it often? Are you thinking about even other platforms or other gameplay mechanics, or are you just concentrating on kind of getting it right for the people who are playing it? Uh, a bit of both uh, in category A and, and category B. Um, definitely there's uh, um, still a lot of improvements that we need to make to existing systems and existing things like such as uh, improving the lobby filtering, lobby searching and, and things like that. And, and I think when something reaches any sort of level of popularity like this, you're going to start to see um, things like cheats and, and hacks being um, being used a lot more. Um, and so that's something that we're also working on sort of reducing and, and basically improving the play experience for, for people who are currently playing. But there are sort of new ideas and, and new thoughts surrounding game mechanics and, and all these different things. Um, as, as for the different platforms, um, we've got a lot of different things in mind as well there as well. Um, nothing sort of ready to announce just yet, but we, we hope to, to jump onto that as soon as we possibly can. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure other platforms would love it. But as you say, you have to get that right. So I get it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I guess one final question before we go, I'd like to ask people, and this may be unfair for people who are in the middle of making a game and don't have a chance to play games, but I, I like to ask people what games they have played or have been playing in the recent or semi-recent past and why they like them and why I think they're good. So are there any games that you feel like uh, you've been playing either recently or semi-recently that you want to give a shout out to? Nothing that, um, I guess the, the only real game that I've been playing a lot uh, really is Minecraft at the moment right now. And that's really just because I... I um, I, I've been having a really fun time um, playing with my daughter. Um, and so there's something magical about that game that just seems to spark the interest and excitement in, in somebody uh, that age. And it's it's really fun reliving through that because I remember playing Minecraft when it was like the original you know, Java version way back in, what would have been 2008 or 2009, something like that. And so it's it's kind of interesting reliving through all of those things. And, and not only that, but seeing how the game has changed in like the last 10 years or so. Yes, it's a wonderful game. My son is very into Minecraft. He's six, but he uh, isn't really into playing it. He's just into all the kind of YouTube videos and lore surrounding it. So I, I guess that's fine. But the point is, I think you're right. Minecraft has kind of like a lore and a logic that I think children really enjoy. Well, you know, whether they're actively playing it or not. So yeah, I definitely agree. That's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 super fascinating. Just because on first glance, when you look at the game, you're kind of like, okay, I kind of know what this is all about. But as you start digging into it further, you start going, oh, actually, there's there's a lot of interesting layers here a lot of interesting things here and, and and they're things that i probably wouldn't have discovered if it was not for her 
That's great. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much, James. Thanks for coming on, and we really appreciated it. Yeah, likewise. No, it was great being on. So that's about it for this week's show. We'd like to thank James Tan for coming on to the podcast. You can find out more about Dread Hunger, tagline, you are who you eat, at dreadhunger.com. As a reminder, this podcast is made by Game Discover Co., home of newsletters and consulting around video game discovery. Sign up to our newsletter at newsletter.gamediscover.co and upgrade paid to plus access if you can. You get extra newsletters, charts, Discord access, ebooks, and more. Our final credits many thanks to our producer, editor, and transcriber Alejandro Linares Lopez, theme tune composer Keith Bayless, aka Vimster, and all of our subscribers and listeners. And we'll see you back in Game Discovery Land in the near future. Thank you.